Welcome to BIV Today, the daily podcast from the newsroom of business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. The pandemic has reshaped many aspects of our lives and identified so many needs to be addressed. And for our conversation today, I thought it would be opportune to look at the intersection of business and law and how some changes might affect a stronger and more sustainable recovery. Jennifer Brunn is the president of the BC branch of the Canadian Bar Association. And in recent weeks, the CBABC has released what it calls an agenda for justice with dozens of recommendations. We're going to have some time today to take a look at some of these. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Kirk. We know a lot about the administration of health in the pandemic. How's the administration of justice going? You know, it's going very well. Uh, it's The pandemic has really cast a light on some of the deficiencies that we have in the administration of justice and some of the opportunities that we can really seize as a result of uh, needing to look to ways to modernize the legal and justice systems in British Columbia. So, so what are some of those early lessons, do you think? So initially, in the early stages of the pandemic, we had to uh, deal with, obviously, the uh, physical distancing requirements. And because so much of our legal and justice systems right now take place uh, in the courthouses in person, we needed to find ways to allow the system to continue uh, without actually having the in-person attendances. So there was uh, quite a quick move by the Court of Appeal to using Zoom hearings and mm-hmm. a, a little bit more of a delayed move by the Supreme Court and the provincial courts to using MS Teams video conferencing. And that primarily was due to the uh, requirement of those two lower courts needing to um, have the compatibility with their evidence recording systems with the video yeah. conferencing platform that they used. Yeah. Is I mean, remote work is likely a permanent feature or a hybrid anyway? Is, uh, is remote type justice the same thing? I think what we're focusing on now is finding the uh, best and most durable changes that we've seen as a result of the pandemic and moving forward with those in the virtual format and then moving some of the proceedings um, back or continuing to have those in person. So trials in the BC Supreme Court have uh, continued in person. Many of the witnesses have been appearing virtually, but the lawyers and the judges have remained in the courthouses. Um, Chambers hearings initially were by telephone and um, then transferred to the MS Teams platform. Those are working very well, but some of the uh, deficits we're finding are those informal conversations that counsel and parties would have in the hallways, um, you know, either before or uh, in between uh, their proceedings. So we're trying to now replicate um, that uh, sort of the emotional aspect that is being lost in the virtual hearing. But there are some real benefits to having chambers proceed in the format and um, some drawbacks that we're working on. If I hear you right, it, it sounds like it's no different than what a lot of other people are experiencing, say, with their workplaces, which is that some of the nuance, some of the things that expedite uh, matters, um, uh, th- those kinds of informal things where you're almost depending on body language, but you need that in-person presence. Uh, uh, the, somehow they're, they're the most difficult to replicate. 
Right. So to give you an example, in Vancouver courthouse uh, chambers, typically what would happen is you'd show up sort of an hour before, you'd meet with opposing counsel, there may be three or four different orders that one party is seeking, and you may be able to reach agreement on a few of those and perhaps only proceed with one before the court. Um, what lawyers realized fairly early on was instead of waiting for that time, you needed to be more proactive. And so you'd pick up the phone and call opposing counsel and try and work through some of those issues before your teleconference or video conference appearance. Uh, of course, initially, if the lawyer only has one phone line, that became an issue as well because they were already okay. on on hold with the court and unable okay. to answer the phone call of opposing counsel. So obviously, you know, you need to be a little more proactive than calling the, the day of to, to sort out those issues. Is it um, much more expensive to do it this way? It's actually a cost savings to the litigants oh. to, to appear virtually because um, pre-pandemic, what would happen is the council would have to travel to the courthouses if they're not in a uh, jurisdiction where the courthouse is easily accessible. And then they will wait in court for their opportunity to be heard, and meanwhile billing their client for the time that they're sitting waiting for their matter to be called. Now, what can happen is you're just uh, at home or in your office on MS Teams waiting for your matter to be called forward by the court clerk. And while you're waiting on mute with your camera off for your matter to be called, you can be working on other things. So you don't have to bill your client for the time that you're just sitting waiting for your matter to be heard. So it's much more cost effective. And a client doesn't have to necessarily take a day off work. It depends on the matter. Um, quite often for the type of chambers um, appearances in, in my line of work, the litigant wouldn't be there in any event. Um, but there are many hearings where you would need the party uh, available. And um, it may be that they can take a shorter amount of time off work rather than being available for the entire day. They would still have to have the technology, you know, and, and need to be ready and waiting. So much of what we've learned uh, in the pandemic has uh, has been, I think, revealing in terms of areas like inequality. And uh, and obviously that sifts quite a bit into justice in all of this case. What what are the pain points of inequality that are that are really coming to the surface during the pandemic and how how would you like to see them addressed? Well, one of the main issues is even just having access to that technology. So, for example, not everyone has a phone plan and is able to access the virtual platforms. Uh, I was doing an examination for Discovery last week where the party I was examining had a low data plan and their camera continually turned off every few minutes and then they would have to update their data and the camera would turn back on. And obviously we need the camera on for those types of proceedings to assess credibility and things of that nature. So, um, you know, accessibility is a huge issue in particular with the rural and indigenous communities. And because of the geography of our province, it's very difficult to get the technology, get the bandwidth that we need into those communities. So even if we had the resources in place to get the technology to those communities, it's not necessarily viable based on the uh, geography that we have and the technology that we have available today to actually provide access. So a number of uh, issues that we're working on and we do make recommendations in our agenda for justice with respect to addressing those. Um, there are some different ideas out there, um, 
using some of the parent legal centers, using some of the um, public places like libraries. But of course, there's issues with having the technological support in those types of venues uh, that the litigants may need. And there's also issues with confidentiality and whether or not they would actually be in a private center. So there's been some talk about mobile centers, you know, moving into these communities that have uh, access to the technology that the residents would need. But uh, early days brainstorming right now. Yeah, it, but those early days do sound very innovative. Uh, that, and it does sound as if there is a new thinking that's emerging about um, where justice can be carried out. One of the other um, great things we're seeing is sort of a, a have a judge, need a judge uh, system whereby some of the more rural communities that um, don't necessarily have a judge sitting regularly but are working on the assize system. Um, in those communities, sometimes not all of the matters on the list can be heard. And as you said, you know, parties have taken time off work. They're hoping that their matter is going to be heard. There may be um, a child custody issue. And if it doesn't get handled at that time, they have to wait until the next time that the judge is available in their community, um, which can be devastating on a number of levels, um, financially and emotionally. And it's nice because with this virtual technology that we have now, if a judge does become available in a more urban center, there's no reason that they should not be able to hear some of the matters in that more rural community that has a long list for the day, for example. Uh, the difficulty, though, with that now is we have the technology in place for the, the judge to be available, but not necessarily the what we call the chamber's records or the documents available. So because yeah. of that, um, we are calling for an online registry of the chamber's materials being filed so that they don't actually need to have a hard copy uh, couriered, you know, overnight or day of to make sure it gets to the registry where the judge is available. If they were all just online, it wouldn't matter where the judge was in the province, they would be able to access that. So. It's a difficulty that we're struggling with. Some of the communities don't even have an overnight service to uh, get those records from one registry to another. Um, but definitely, as you say, innovative and um, lots of great opportunities moving forward for increasing access to justice for all British Columbians. In an optimal uh, climate for all of this, would we see a much broader sharing of this data? So there is a call for further um, collection of data and dissemination of data. And there um, is quite a bit of information right now that's publicly available on the court websites as well. Um, of course, we know that by increasing the accessibility of data, there are associations such as the Canadian Bar Association that can look at that and advocate for different, different allocation of resources to make sure that we're really um, advocating for funding in important areas that uh, have the most need. So, of course, data is always very important and um, we hope to have access to more data in the future. Yeah. One of the impacts on the, of the pandemic, obviously, has been on relationships on families, um, people having to uh, stay at home, uh, children staying home from school for protracted periods, uh, People losing their jobs, of course. People having health issues. A lot of reasons why we've uh, we've kind of burrowed ourselves into homes, and it's been tough on a lot of families. And and I know from you know from anecdotally in the community that that a lot of uh, you know 
family law has, has boomed in this case, and not necessarily because things are better, that things are more difficult on families. What kind of reforms do you think the pandemic has um, has taught us about what might ne might be necessary now? So increasing, um, it's sort of twofold with respect to legal aid for families. We would like to see an increase in um, the scope of legal aid and the services that are available. So the, the scope of eligibility and then the services that are actually available. Um, right now, there are certain um, cohorts of people who cannot access legal aid. Um, in particular, if the issue that they're having or the dispute that they're having with their partner is with respect to um, the division of assets or divorce. Um, so we'd like to see an expanded scope of the legal aid. And then uh, eligibility. Uh, for example, uh, somebody who was receiving CERB would not qualify for legal aid. Oh, hmm. yeah. It, it seems like it's though such a, a dilemma that it's almost penalizing those um, that really have already some of the greatest hardship. I mean, it is a difficult dilemma. We know that over half of Canadians will deal with either a civil or family law um, matter that has a legal solution in any three-year given period. And so the recommendations that we make in the Agenda for Justice really go to the heart of the issues that British Columbians are experiencing in everyday situations. Yeah. Um, the, the agenda for justice also calls for a real modernization of, uh, there's a lot of outdated laws that look at things like uh, commercial leases and contracts and, and uh, you know, there's a spate of new instruments and products out there um, that, that are very dominant in this space when we've got some hardship. Things like reverse mortgages and, and other types of uh, lending vehicles and all of that. How how might you think the law be better reshaped around some of these areas? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, a lot of the laws are outdated in British Columbia and really do need to be modernized. So for the most part, we find that commercial contracts are governed by common law principles that lawyers are taught in law school, but that business owners don't necessarily know. And so when a dispute arises, it can be very difficult to find out how to handle or resolve that dispute without seeking legal advice. Um, one of the recommendations that we make in our agenda for justice is to uh, enact a contract fairness act that would actually clarify that common law and um, the, the precedent that we've developed in our jurisdiction and make it easier for businesses to resolve those disputes, um, which hopefully would lead to a reduction of the uh, commercial disputes that we see in our courts. So that's on the um, contract fairness issue that you raised. And then I think you touched on um, commercial leases and reverse mortgages as well. So with mm -hmm. respect to commercial leasing, uh, the Commercial Tenancies Act was actually enacted back in 1897 and hasn't been um, modernized substantially since. It, oh, I mean, what, what, what could have possibly changed since then, Jennifer? You know, it's, uh, it's quite fun, actually. I... Um, a member of our board, as we were talking about the modernization of this legislation, um, circulated to our fellow board members Section 2 of the Rent Distress Act, which is um, actually still, still in effect, and it states 
the following personal property is not liable to seizure by distress for rent or penalty. And then it goes through a number of things, including one cooking stove with pipe and furnishings, one other heating stove with pipe, one set of cooking utensils. It goes on and on, washstand, washboard, um, one saw, one lamp. You know, <laughs> this is the Rent Distress Act that's still in effect today in British Columbia. So um, lots to do with respect to modernizing legislation that um, really has a, a zero dollar price tag on it, other than taking into consideration uh, the time and expenses of our, our members of the legislature dealing with these things. So um, the commercial tenants, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, what, what do you think holds us up? Is, is it just time, energy, uh, you know, uh, other priorities for legislators? Uh, because these things seem so, el uh, so evident to, uh, to, to fix. Um, why don't we get around to it? You know, I think it's a combination of those factors, particularly with the pandemic right now. Um, you know, with the current session, they should be focusing on the rollout of the vaccine program and getting, you know, business back open, the economy open, uh, everyone back in their offices downtown. Um, there are certain priorities, the opioid crisis. I mean, um, these things are important and deserve attention and um, deserve solutions. Uh, so we're trying to do our own little bit of good here by putting all of these recommendations in a nice, concise package that's easy to understand um, to sort of uh, point the finger at some quick fixes to some of these things that maybe are further down the priority list, but they're low hanging fruit and hopefully we'll get some traction with these. I want to get to, to that issue, though, of, uh, of reverse mortgages, because it was very clear in the report that that, uh, you know, the, the Bar Association is concerned about some of the uh, impact of the pandemic on housing and, uh, and, and payment for housing. Um, what kind of additional protection might the law provide a consumer in this case? Right. So we are um, clearly all aware of the inadequacies and dangerous of care uh, homes uh, that the pandemic has truly exposed. And so what we are seeing is that many older persons are reconsidering their retirement plans in light of those inadequacies and those dangers. And so they are considering borrowing funds through a reverse mortgage in order to remain in their homes longer. And um, right now, we're concerned that the disclosure statements required under the Businesses, Practices and Consumer Protections Act are not broad enough to um, really let borrowers know what sort of uh, large amounts they may owe after a certain period of time because of things like interest. And so the recommendations that we've made in our report really focus on um, increased disclosure to those consumers so that they can be aware of what they may expect down the road if they do uh, actually engage in a reverse mortgage. Last, uh, last area, if there's one area uh, that you think would spur the best possible economic recovery, and and the one also that that is the fairest, fairest for all people in this case, because it's not simply trying to appease business here, but but society in general. Is there one place you would start tomorrow? In my view, the focus right now 
should be on the modernization of the courts and and the legal system. So, and I think government agrees with that. I think the courts agree with that. And because we have buy-in from all sectors, the government, the bench, and the bar, um, we really have traction right now to make a difference and to really seize upon um, the opportunities that the challenges of the pandemic have brought forward to us. Uh, we've had such incredible collaboration between all stakeholders in the justice system throughout the province over the last year. Uh, and I really hope that that continues and that we you know, continue the dialogue with the courts, continue the dialogue with government and move forward for the benefit of all British Columbians in modernizing and increasing uh, the access to the courts that we have established so far. So it, it doesn't sound like you think necessarily that everyone's going to go back to their respective corners in this one, that there, there may be kind of an enduring collaboration here once we're through the worst of this. In my view, there certainly is going to be. Everyone is working hard on uh, making sure that the best outcomes that we've had through this pandemic are durable and um, stay with us well into the future. Yeah. Well, excellent. Jennifer, I, I thank you so much for your time today. It's been really great talking to you. And let's get back together again uh, on the podcast and uh, explore the progress that's being made in the time ahead. Thanks for your interest, Kirk. I really appreciate it. Jennifer Brunn is the uh, head of the BC branch of the Canadian Bar Association. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. Thanks a lot for watching.